that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention. That as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Having grown up in an extremely conservative little Baptist church in La Rose, Louisiana, down the bayou, Lafouche Parish, the only thing I thought I knew about the church calendar was that it was Catholic. I mean, we celebrated Christmas and Easter, but if you heard something of Advent or Holy Week, it was in reference to the big building with the stained glass and Jesus still on their crosses. My little cinder block church with the metal framed windows and the crank handle that opened them had the actual truth. I mean, we were a bit arrogant for some reason. Emmanuel Baptist Church in Alexandria, Louisiana was my first real engagement with the liturgical calendar. It was my very first experience with Advent in the fullest sense, and it remains to this day the most meaningful for me, and probably what I've missed the most since moving away. Holy Week became infused with new meanings as well. We were offered numerous opportunities for reflection, confession, and worship. It was the first time I experienced or even heard, for that matter, of Maundy Thursday. In the Good Friday service of darkness, it always made me face up to the darkness and the finality of the crucifixion. I've come to understand that Larry Taylor's gift to all of us in his preaching is his ability to place us in the ancient stories of the scriptures. The sermon we're about to hear was preached on February 20th of 2005. They were five weeks out from Easter, and Larry was preparing the church for the journey that they would be taking over the next several weeks leading up to Easter. I recognize this is somewhat out of order when you look at the traditional church calendar. However, as I listened to this the other day on my walk, I just found it absolutely timely for the place we find ourselves in right now. I hope you do too. So here's Larry preaching more than a rumor of angels. In the 1960s, Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot became a hit on Broadway. It has since become a classic. The entire play involved two miserable clown figures waiting for the appearance on stage of the mysterious Mr. Godot, a kind of God figure who never arrives. A little boy keeps appearing with news about Mr. Godot, promising and reassuring that he will eventually show up and set everything right in an otherwise vacuous world. But Mr. Godot does not appear. And so the stage itself becomes painfully 
empty. About 10 years later, there appeared a one-act satire entitled Waiting for Humanity, with only one character on stage, God. And a little boy once again keeps showing up, this time with news from humanity, who promises to return soon, but who remains strangely absent. And the two plays in tandem set up the question, what is the relation between God and humanity so that when one of them seems absent from the stage, the other is also strangely absent? Something has happened in our time that has never happened before. God has disappeared for multitudes of people from the center stage of the world. The extent to which the Christian vision has lost its hold on thinkers, writers, and intellectuals in the West would be hard to exaggerate. Many people have been overcome by the sense of the absence of God. Not everyone, of course, feels this way. And hopefully you do not. But the general mood in our secular age is that God has somehow withdrawn from the stage and left our world a lonely, silent place. A few years ago, I attended a conference of writers and literary figures, and one of them from the Northeast said, there is no sign of the ghost of Jesus Christ to be found anywhere in New England. In the land of Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards, and Roger Williams, what happened? It wasn't always this way. In former ages, God was acknowledged virtually everywhere. In the Christian world of the Middle Ages, there were few atheists, scientists, intellectuals, scholars, as well as common people still saw and felt and heard God in the world around them. Sir Isaac Newton in the early 18th century, probably the most brilliant theoretical physicist ever to live, could still be a devout Christian. But read the scientific writings of Sir Stephen Hawking, Newton's successor today at Cambridge, and you find him saying, God is no longer necessary in contemporary science. The stage is empty. God was the great cultural assumption in the age of Christendom. Even as late as the 19th century, God remained a working hypothesis for most people. The poetry of Wordsworth and Tennyson abounds with assurances of God. Science still moved within the orbit of theism. Messengers came frequently to assure people that Mr. Godot was well and would soon make his appearance. After all, the world was getting better every day, and progress was inevitable. The kingdom was coming soon with what Tennyson called sweeter manners, pure laws. So what happened? Why does our stage 
seems so empty. When we were in England the first time in 1979, we visited Oxford, the ancient university town. I had looked forward to going to Blackwell's bookstore. It's one of the most famous bookstores in Europe. And furthermore, I had a letter of introduction to Mr. Blackwell himself. The letter came from the retired librarian at New Orleans Seminary who was a member of my church. After browsing through the bookshelves, I asked to see Mr. Blackwell and a suspicious employee ushered me into the presence of a gray-haired, tall, distinguished Englishman who received me warmly and with whom I fell into a deep conversation as though we'd known each other for years. And I remember remarking to him that I had enjoyed wandering through the religion section of the bookstore. And he replied, half apologetically, Oh, we used to have a much larger religion section when God was bigger. When God was bigger, what on earth happened? A.N. Wilson has traced the slow decline of God in Great Britain. The British churches today are all but empty, like the stage in Beckett's play. It was in the Victorian era of the late 19th century that belief in God was seriously undermined. Scottish philosopher David Hume had devastated Christian theology with his logical arguments. Nietzsche had declared, God is dead and we have killed him. And Thomas Hardy had written a poem entitled God's Funeral in which he mourned the passing of God. What happened? This is Great Britain where the play is the thing, for goodness sake. Why the empty stage? In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a quartet of thinkers and writers began to raise disturbing questions which we are still considering. Their names were Darwin, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. Some people think they were a quartet straight from hell, but they changed the way people look at the world. Suddenly, all the places where people had previously seen God clearly became ambiguous. Nature was not simply beautiful and harmonious as though brushed by the hand of God. It was also red in tooth and claw. It might still have its beautiful sunsets and snow-capped mountains, but it also had the boll weevil, the tsunami, and the killer earthquake. History might still boast of its mighty acts of God to the eyes of faith, but history came to be seen as soft and dependent on the community writing the history. Science became unanchored from the very faith that gave it birth and appealed to natural selection and random chance. And philosophy became atheistic at worst and agnostic at best. 
In the information explosion of the 20th century, God was pushed aside and people became less sure of their place in the universe. I remember in an issue of the National Geographic several years ago, the limits of our certainty were pointed out on a spread out map of the cosmos. Red question marks appeared around the margins of the known universe reminiscent of the old maps of the world before the age of discovery and the words across char uncharted areas, here be dragons. But more than anything else, in this past century, the eclipse of God has been the result of unparalleled suffering. In no other century have so many people died in wars and disaster. World War I marked the end of the optimistic belief in inevitable progress. And the Second World War showed us the shape of Armageddon itself. The world had become a nightmarish hall of mirrors in which we saw grotesque reflections of bones and skulls and scattered body parts like Picasso's painting Guarnica, only to realize that we are the dismembered selves. It is suffering and pain in a world supposedly ruled by a powerful and loving God that has made God problematical for people in this secular age. Why can't God do something about our kind of world? If God is all-powerful, God must be able to do better. If God is all-loving, then surely God must want to do better. Why then a world where terrorists can strike at the heart of peaceful countries and take the lives of thousands? Surely God must be absent. A quarter of a million people die in an Asian tsunami of staggering proportions. But after a few days, a sensation-hungry media are looking around for a newer headline. Humanity also seems to be absent. It's a striking thing, striking that God became obscure to many people at approximately the same time that humanity also began to disappear. It's as though not only God has exited the stage, but humanity as well. The long wait for Mr. Godot has been transformed into a wait for humanity, and the messenger boys keep coming from time to time to assure us that when the one reappears, so will the other. God, it seems, is needed to make us human, and humanity is required for God to make sense. Our stage remains empty, until they both re-enter. Today, many people say that while they would very much like to believe again, God seems dreadfully hidden to them. They're haunted by the sense of the absence of God in their everyday life. 
novelists like John Updike and playwrights like Arthur Miller and filmmakers like Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman have shown us the shape of this postmodern landscape with its sense of the empty stage. But we are not the first age to feel that God is hidden. The Bible itself gives powerful, powerful expression to the hiddenness of God. As we've read together this morning, centuries before Christ, Job searched for God and said, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Earlier still, out of the experience of exile in Babylon, a poet among the Jewish people, known to us only as Second Isaiah, said, Truly, thou art a God who hidest thyself. Obviously, the stage seemed empty to him. Far away from home, Jerusalem now only a distant dream, their God eclipsed by the gods of Babylon and the great city of the Babylonians. The Jews wondered what the Jews have wondered this past century. Where is this God? Martin Luther came on this verse one day in Isaiah, and he was struck by it. Thou art a God who hidest thyself. It became a cornerstone in his Reformation theology. Another Jewish poet named Jeremiah had said, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And so Martin Luther went on to speak of God hidden, and God revealed, God the paradox and God the mystery, God the elusive and God the unfathomable. Faith speaks of the hidden God because under the conditions of the world, we only see through a glass darkly, and sometimes we forget that. Thoughtful people have learned to be suspicious of those who claim to see God clearly. In the words of sociologist Peter Berger, there's only a rumor of angels. The more God reveals God's self, the more hidden God becomes. Luther even stood before the cross of Jesus and said that while at no point is God more fully revealed than right here, at no point is God more mysterious and hidden than in this innocent dying man hanging on a gallows. Thou art a God who hidest thyself. Why? Why does God hide God's self? This text from Isaiah, this text from the Babylonian exile, leaves us feeling less than certain. It seems to cry out for another text, another scripture to advance the question and to offer hope. And sure enough, such a text does occur later in Isaiah. After the exile was over, 
after the Jews were back in their homeland once again, and now it seemed that God had reappeared on the stage of their history. And the prophet recounted God's steadfast love to his people, and he said, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. The angel of his presence saved them. That sounds like more than just a rumor of angels. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. God had been with them all along. Their stage was never empty. And that becomes the essence of the gospel in the Old Testament. Could it be that we've sought God in the wrong places while he was among us all along? And if we can hear this word of the prophet, it becomes good news, the word of gospel to us as well. Because it is a word about the pain of God. God is not some remote, impassive God, but a present God who hurts in all our hurts and is afflicted in all our afflictions. The suffering of God is something of a rediscovery for this generation. Since God so loved the world, God suffers because to love is to suffer. In the 1960s, at the very same time Waiting for Godot was a hit in the West, Kaza Kitamori, a Japanese theologian, discovered this same verse in Isaiah. And out of the context of Hiroshima and Nagasaki wrote his book, The Pain of God. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. The pain of God springs from the very fact of the creation of the world. In an act of creation, God opened God's self up to suffering. Creation is costly to God. The pain on God's part has often been hidden from our eyes, and yet the suffering of God in His relation to the world is the long story that we find in the Bible. The Bible is the narrative of the suffering of God. Emil Falkenheim concludes a recent study on Judaism with a reference to the hidden God. And he asks, why does God hide? And he answers, it is weeping that God hides. God hides his weeping in the inner chamber, for just as God is infinite, so his pain is infinite, and this, were it to touch the world, would destroy it. God so loved the world that he hid the infinity of his pain, lest it be destroyed. love for his people predates the death of Christ. P.T. Forsyth, a theologian from the early 20th century, said there's always been a, a sob at the heart of God. Before there was a cross on Calvary, there was a cross in the heart of God. 
Charles H. Spurgeon, great British Baptist preacher, said, as surely as God's children are in the fiery furnace, he is in there with them. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. We don't usually think to look for God in the furnace with us. We know we're there. But there God is, present with us in our suffering, a silent servant of the Lord, stricken and smitten just like us. Somewhere in one of his sermons, Frederick Beekner asked, why couldn't God, why couldn't God just make a clear, unambiguous statement about himself that would leave no doubt? Why couldn't God some night just write with stars in the Milky Way the words, God is, that'd settle everything. And then he goes on to say, not at all. That isn't really what we want. What we want is to know that God cares, that God is close to us, that God knows our feelings. If we would find God, as Jeremiah promised, then we must look for God in all the right places. Look for God among the homeless and the hurting and the poor and the oppressed. Look for God in the suffering and the diseased and the hungry. Didn't Jesus tell us as much? Among these, the least of our brothers and sisters, he is to be seen. If the church is ever again going to grow and prosper, it has to preach good news to the poor. It has to look for God along with humanity in all the places where people are hurting. It was after the horror of the concentration camp at Auschwitz that people asked, where was God? Where was God at Auschwitz? And then someone else thought to ask, where was humanity? When either God or humanity exits the stage for the time being, so does the other. The stage is empty because God is something that happens to us on the way to becoming human. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. And so on Good Friday, God steps momentarily out of the cloud and we see in the man on the cross the full suffering love of God. And then God is swallowed up in the fog again and we're left to ponder just what we've seen. And in this man, this man who dies on Good Friday, the absent God again becomes present to the eyes of faith. The hidden God is revealed. The silent God speaks. No wonder. No wonder J.S. Whale could say, 
Jesus is what man means when he says God and what God means when he says man. No wonder incarnation is the perfect paradigm of God. Because in Jesus, God and humanity are finally joined. And both of them return to the stage at the very same moment. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone. That regardless of what we have been able to see at any moment on the stage, you have not left us alone. Indeed, we've come to see that you are sitting with us in the theater, that you are as moved as we are by what is going on or what is not going on that you are as touched by our condition as we are, vastly more aware of it than we are, vastly more injured by it than we are. And we can testify there have been those moments. There have been those moments for us when we sensed that we were not alone, that somehow we were buoyed, that we were held, that we were embraced. And that regardless of our loneliness, our discouragement, our loss at the moment, we were held by a love that will not let us go. We need to sense that again in this season. This journey is hard. This road is not easy. We need to sense that you are with us, that in our afflictions you are afflicted, that in our pains and sufferings you hurt, and that your love for us is beyond question, beyond imagination, beyond anything I has seen. Continue, we pray, to be with us through these days on the road, these days when we're hearing things we don't understand, when the Master is sharing with us stories and illustrations that trouble us and set us scratching our heads in wonder. Be with us as we try to stay up with him. And bring us, we pray, at the end of our journey to all the great surprises that you have for us because you're the God who is ever doing new things. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I believe I've referenced my 
personal religious detox a couple of times, if you've been following this podcast. If I had to pick one thing that has done to help me, it would be that I, well, I see human beings now, maybe for the first time. I know that sounds a little dramatic, like I'm knocking off the Sixth Sense movie, but it's not dead people that I've been seeing lately. It's human beings. Over the past 15 years or so, I've had opportunity to volunteer in a couple of roles, as well as in my work that I'm currently doing. And these roles have helped me see this in a different way than I used to. I've worked the booth at the U.S. Conference on AIDS for Samaritan Ministry, which is a ministry based in Knoxville, Tennessee. The U.S. Conference on AIDS is a national conference put on by the National Minority AIDS Council and is attended by several thousand people each year, people who represent caseworkers, pharmaceutical workers, healthcare people, people that are working with people who have HIV or AIDS. It's become an annual event that I look forward to each year. Every year, I have opportunity to have conversations with hundreds of people, many of whom the religion of my youth has excluded or placed judgmental labels upon. I also chair the Foster Care Review Board for our county, which I've served on for about eight years. Our task is to review the cases of all the children who have been placed into custody of the state due to their own delinquent offenses or the abuses of their parents. We make sure they're on track to graduate high school, that they're getting all of their health needs met. We make sure they're able to visit with their family members and others who they're able to visit with. We make sure that their permanency plans and goals are being met by all the parties that have become involved in their lives to intervene in very difficult circumstances. And also, for the last year, I've been employed as the executive director of the Coffee County Anti-Drug Coalition. Through all these roles, I've had plenty of opportunity to see the results of poor actions, bad choices, stigmas imposed as well as stigmas assumed, and quite frankly, pure evil. But the surprising thing has been that I'm seeing human beings now. As I look deeper beyond the stigmas, the actions of self-hatred and their consequences, I'm seeing people out beyond all of the labels that have clouded my vision I see people alive and animated with the Spirit of God. And they are good. I believe it was author Rob Bell who pointed out something that I had never considered. Bell said that many modern Christians begin their Bibles in chapter 3 of Genesis. You know, forbidden fruit, serpents, fig leaves, banishment from paradise, the fall where human becomes synonym for mistakes, sinfulness, and falling short. We equated human with bad actions and choices 
and their resulting consequences. But our scriptures actually begin in chapter 1. We humans are said to have been created by God in God's image. And God saw what he had created, and it was good. I was asked in a Facebook conversation the other day, as Christians, what are we supposed to do with all of the division that we're facing in our country right now? Now, I will not even try to assume that I have the answer. But my response to him is what I believe I'm going to personally try to incorporate as a practice in my life. I'm going to lead with human and then let my faith inform that. I think way too often we people of faith want to lead with our religion, which tends to place labels and which also tends to place a lens on our eyes that clouds what we actually are looking at. We claim the ultimate truth first, and then we try to convert the labels in front of us to the labels we've placed on ourselves. This ancient book that we still claim to read begins with God and with human. Wouldn't it be great if at this moment both God and human appeared on the stage together? I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of a Thin Place podcast. If you have any suggestions or comments, ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your social media platforms. All of us who love Larry would love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. As always, I want to thank the doctors, Taylor, Larry, and Linda, for allowing us to use these sermons in this way and to rediscover them ourselves. Until next time, grace and peace.